Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're continuing our series, uh, our series in the Psalms, Real Authentic Worship, and I've entitled our message today, A God When I Fall. In 1990, there was a, a fascinating movie that was, uh, that was released. It was called Flatliners. It had an all-star cast. Peter, can you take me down a touch? I feel like I'm blowing myself off the stage. I do like the sound of my own voice, but not that much. It had an all-star cast, Kiefer Sutherland, who was a star in 24, uh, Julia Roberts, Kevin Bacon, William Baldwin. And in it, they were medical students. There were five medical students, and they wanted to explore the afterlife, and they wanted to do it from a scientific standpoint. They weren't Christians. They're just medical students who want to know, is there something real after life? So what they did, they're in medical school, they hijacked some medical equipment, and they orchestrated a scary experiment, and it was in some old building, I don't know if it's the library, whatever, like the basement of an old building, they hijacked this medical equipment, they get it over to this building, and one by one, they would put their classmates to death. They would slow down their biological systems, I'm not sure if it was through medication, through cooling the bodies down, and then they would use some sort of shock to stop the heart. And at that moment, they're flatlined. They're dead. The heart is stopped. The brain is still active. And so what they would do is they would do that for a minute or two, and they would sort of take bets on how long they were willing to do it to see who got to go next. And during this time where they were dead, the goal was to see if there really was an afterlife and to see if they could remember it as their classmates then brought them back to life a few minutes later. What they found was not God or an affirmation of any of the world's religions. This wasn't a Christian film. Actually, the genre was psychological horror. In every case, while they were flatlined, they mentally went to unresolved issues from their past. That's where their minds went. Kiefer Sutherland was not a very nice kid when he was young. So his character at one point had chased a little boy up a tree, probably from his class, pelted him with rocks until that boy actually fell and died. That's what came back to his mind. But now the dead boy is the tormentor. And Kiefer Sutherland is the victim. William Baldwin's character had been a womanizer. Young women were basically trophies. He would lead them on, do anything he could to sleep with them. Now these women were taunting him and became a nightmare to him. Kevin Bacon's character had bullied and teased a little African-American girl mercilessly during grade school. Now she's the bully in his consciousness. Julia Roberts' character had witnessed her father commit suicide 
without knowing why. And so she had carried the guilt of her father's death. And I believe he had been a veteran, had, it had a lot of unresolved issues, was on heroin or something as he had returned. But she had seen him take his own life. And so she felt like it was her fault. That's what kept coming back to her. And the problem, and in the movie, what makes this psychological horror was this. These psychological experiences began showing up once they were resuscitated. It's not just that they thought of these things when they were flatlined and then could recall them. Now that they're sort of back in reality, these things are happening and they can't tell the difference between fantasy and reality. They're seeing these people on the streets and they're being tormented. They began to realize in this process that their past sins needed some form of resolution, some, some sort of closure, some sort of, if we can use our term, forgiveness. And they struggled to find it. They actually remind me of the average Christian. Say, the average Christian? How on earth does that relate to the average Christian? We are forgiven. The blood of Jesus has paid for our sins. They've been atoned for. We've actually been declared righteous. We call it justification. God has declared us righteous. How can those sorts of movies be a reflection of the average Christian? Well, I agree. We have been all of those things, but I still say they remind me of Christians for this reason. We often have our pasts with us for the rest of our lives, and no matter what the Bible says about forgiveness, no matter what the Bible says about who we are in Christ, some of us keep dredging them up over and over and over, and they never really find resolution. It shouldn't be that way, but it is for a lot of Christians. So how should we deal with our failures? How do we move forward? How do we live out our forgiveness and God's grace? Well, today I want to look at Psalm 51. I want you to turn there. It's on page 413 in the Bible near you, page 413, Psalm 51. We're going to read this together. Psalm 51, page 413. It begins with the superscription, for the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice." Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation, and then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. Actually, that's kind of not true. We'll talk about that later, why David is saying this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good design, build the walls of Jerusalem, and then you'll delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. It's one of the greatest pieces of literature that we have in the Psalms, written by one of its greatest writers. When I fall, when I fall, what do you do when you mess up in your life? The superscription gives us the setting. Now, in the English Bible, it doesn't have a verse number in front of it. It just says, for the choir director, according, or I should say, for the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Now, that in the English Bible is not a verse, and there's some debate over, we've talked about this before, whether or not these are part of the original text, whether they're inspired, whether they're part of the scriptures. The Hebrew Bible actually begins that little superscription with the number one and calls it the first verse and absolutely believes it's part of the original text. Either way, we believe they're accurate reflections of what's going on behind these psalms. This was a low point in David's life. David was the second king of Israel. We all know him. He was, it's, it's most famous king. He became the template for kings. In fact, when you look at books like Kings and Chronicles, they will talk about whether a king was like, the, like his father David because David actually became the template for good kings. He was exactly what God had been looking for. Remember, Israel's form of government, kind of strange, it's called a theocracy through monarchy. So God is the king through a human king, theocracy through monarchy. It's kind of a fascinating setup. And David loved God passionately. We see it in his writings in the Psalms. He obeyed God. He was really a, a kid who was thinking about God. He was probably writing Psalms when he was a young shepherd boy. He demonstrated great faith in his life. And when he's given this first great opportunity to be on the world stage, he's bringing food to his brothers at the front. They're in a battle with the Philistines, and he goes to the front. He's got cheese and things like that, breads to give to his brothers and maybe the commander of their uh, small legion. And Goliath steps out into the valley of Elah and starts taunting the God of Israel. Nine foot six, low body fat percentage, about 400 pounds, 200 pounds of armor and weapons. And he starts taunting Israel and her gods and offers to do a man-on-man fight so the two armies don't have to lose a lot of men. So we'll just do a one-on-one. If you win, we serve you. If we win, you serve us. David saw this and he said, why are we allowing this guy to defy our God? If nobody else will fight him, I will. David wasn't a big guy, couldn't fit in Saul's armor. I'm guessing he's, you know, 5'9", five, 5'10", five, at best, good-looking Jewish boy, but not a big guy. Walked out in the Valley of Elah with a slingshot and five stones. 
put one in Goliath's temple, stunned him. He fell to the ground. David ran up, took the sword out of his hands, cut his head off, and raised it in the valley of Elah and said, there is a God in heaven. And after that, David was famous. In fact, God had told Saul, Saul was the first king, wasn't a very good guy, that he was looking for somebody else, a man after God's own heart, it says in 1 Samuel 13. We're looking for a man after God's own heart, and that would be David. And he was great in those early years. He was a military champion. He was actually patient as he waited for the throne. And for many years, Saul hunted him, some say seven or eight years. And then finally, when he got the throne, it was the throne of his own tribe. Then it was the throne of all Israel. He united the tribes. He conquered Jerusalem. He defeated every regional enemy. Everyone was defeated on all four fronts except for the Ammonites. And even now, his armies have the capital of Rabbah under siege. It's the springtime. David didn't join his army that spring. One night, he's struggling to sleep. He goes out on the roof of his palace, flat roof. And I imagine David sort of gazing in every direction, north, south, east, west, Warm breeze coming across the palace roof. He's thinking of past battles running through his mind, years of memories, great events. And he deserved a lot of credit. And that's probably exactly what he was thinking about, all the credit he deserved when he saw her on another roof at a little different elevation, Bathsheba naked, bathing in the moonlight. And he's the king. He's an eastern king. Why should he not have whatever he wants? He inquired about who it might be. He wasn't shy. He's got people checking into who this woman is, naked on another roof. And they say to him, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah? In other words, you know everybody connected to her. You know the dad. He did the trim work in the palace. You know the mom. She's the one who keeps dropping off those fig Newtons. You you know the family. They all wear matching clothes at the spring banquet. You know this family. In fact, you know her husband. This is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, as of Uriah, one of your mighty men, one of your 30 who's pledged his life to you. You know all of them. Didn't matter. So he sent for her. He slept with her. A couple weeks later, he received a note. David, I'm pregnant. Sign B. Now, the problem is the pregnancy couldn't really be explained. This is a pre-scientific era, but they're not stupid. Her husband is a soldier at Rabbah. He's helping with the siege against the capital, the Ammonites. He's not anywhere near his wife. So we've got to cover up a pregnancy. He's one of David's 30 mighty men. They knew each other well. So David sent for Uriah, said, I want to get a war report, so send Uriah back here. 
And his goal was, you know, Uriah, give me a war, war report, and then I'm going to send Uriah home to be with his wife. It'll look like it's a great gift. He can sleep with his wife. They'll just assume the baby's a little bit premature. Probably Uriah's not counting 38 weeks anyway, so it's going to be fine. Uriah stayed at the palace, slept on the steps. He wouldn't go home. He considered it to be dishonorable to be with his wife if his fellow soldiers couldn't be with their wives. And I suspect that he might have suspected something when Dave drived night after night to get him to go home. So David said, okay, plan B. I'm the king. I can do what I want. So he sent a note sealed, so Uriah wouldn't open it, to the general at the front. Uriah carried his own death warrant gave it to the general at the front. The note basically said, put Uriah where the fighting is the fiercest and then withdraw from him in battle. You're a general under an eastern king. You don't disobey that order. They would have just assumed, you know, David's got his reasons. Time for Uriah to go. They obeyed. Uriah was killed. So in about a month to six weeks, David has committed adultery and murder. The man after God's own heart, the template for all future kings, adultery and murder. And he just thought he could live with it. He could live with it. He married Bathsheba as soon as her husband was dead and she'd gone through a little bit of a mourning period. She's in the palace and she's his eighth wife. But who's counting? He just covered it up. And he's trying to move on, never acknowledging it, until a brave prophet named Nathan came to confront him. And Psalm 51 was the result. When I fall, first, I plead for mercy. Now, there are actually only five movements in Psalm 51, and scholars spend a lot of time sort of working through the Psalms, and they're a little hard to outline because there are so many um, Hebrew parallelisms, like the psalmist will say something one way, and then he'll say the same thing another way, and so there's a lot of repetition, and so you don't want to over-outline a psalm because it's easy to do. So the people who study this and study how they were put together would say they're basically five sort of verses or five sections in this psalm, and actually some translations put spaces after verse 2, 6, 12, and 17. They sort of, you know, put spaces there so you can see these different movements. First thing David does is pleads for mercy. Now in many religions, forgiveness is really not that simple because being right with God is more of a matter of your good deeds outnumbering your bad deeds. They don't really think of being in a right relationship with God the way we do in Christianity. But in Christianity, our forgiveness rests on the very character of God himself, not in our character. It's the character of God. So in verses one and two, we have two sets of synonyms. First, synonyms for God's grace and mercy, then synonyms for our sin and failure. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, gracious, loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. So you have this trilogy of terms about God's character and this trilogy of terms about our own failure or sin. There's a particular word in that group that the Old Testament Hebrews or Jews used for this concept. 
It's actually a word, it's called a hard H. It's chesed, sort of a C-H, hard C-H, chesed. It appears in Exodus 34, 6. Now, Exodus 34, Moses has already given the Ten Commandments to Israel. Right, actually, he, he, he's done it once. When he came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he found that they were already breaking the first one. And Moses, you know, blood sugar was a little low. He hadn't had anything to eat. He was a little upset. Broke the Ten Commandments. Remember that scene? Comes down the mountain. Israelites have built a golden calf, and they're worshiping it. You know, what's the first command? You know, worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. You know, it's not good. So he sees this, and he's really mad, and he had put, you know, Aaron in charge, and you just can't put Aaron in charge. And so he's so upset, so he breaks the Ten Commandments. Well, God can make commandments. He put those stones together again. He wrote on him, sent him to Moses again. He said, Moses, go down the mountain again, give him these Ten Commandments. And then the second time, he said something about his own character. He talks about his loving kindness. He uses this word chesed. word loving kindness is how it's translated. I don't love that. Others would say it's called covenant loyalty. I don't love that because we're not a part of the Old Testament covenant. So what it kind of is was God's promise to Israel that they could always come to him for forgiveness and he would always forgive them. It's sort of like this never-ending grace that would be extended towards them. Doesn't mean there wouldn't be consequences for bad behavior, but he will always be their God. They can always come to him, and he will always take them back. That's sort of what this means. It's the word that guarantees that God will never quit on you, and God will never quit on me. There's not sort of a point where the sin meter hits a certain level, and it's like God just says, okay, I've had enough with Brushaber. I mean, his relatives were the same way. I've had it with the whole clan. God doesn't do that. There's a never-ending fountain of grace in the character of God that you can count on. God never quits on us. That grace and forgiveness is without limit. That sincere confession and repentance will always be heard, and that's one of the words in this trilogy of words about God's character. When I fall, I plead for mercy, and it's God's character that guarantees he'll always be on the other side of that discussion. Second, when I fall, I own my mistakes. We're not gonna change unless we sort of own what we do. I love this story. I probably said, read it to you a couple years ago. Hopefully you've got a short memory. John Ortberg writes, many years ago, early on in our marriage, my wife and I sold our Volkswagen Beetle to buy our first really nice piece of furniture. It was a sofa. It was pink. But for that kind of money, you don't call it pink. You call it... Now, in the States, we say mauve. In Canada, we say mauve. I just want you to see that I am progressing ever so slowly, but I am progressing there is a mauve sofa in the foyer. See, see, all right. It was mauve. The man at the sofa store told us all about how to take care of it. We took it home. We had very small children in those days. Does anyone want to guess what the number one rule in our house from that day on was? Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't play near the mauve sofa. Don't eat around the sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't breathe on the mauve sofa. Don't think about the mauve sofa. On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit. But on this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit. For in the day you sit thereon, you will surely die. 
And then one day came the fall. There appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. My wife called the man at the sofa factory. He told her how bad that was. So she assembled her three children to look at the stain on the sofa. Laura, who was about four, Mallory about two and a half, Johnny six months old. She said, children, do you see that? That's a stain. That's a red stain. That's a red jelly stain. And the man at the sofa store says it's not coming out, not for all eternity. Do you know how long eternity is, children? Eternity is how long we're all going to sit here until one of you tells me which one of you put the red jelly stain on the mauve sofa. For a long time, they all just sat there till finally Mallory cracked. I knew she would. She said, Laura did it. Laura said, no, I didn't. Then it was dead silence for the longest time. And I knew that none of them would confess putting the stain on the sofa because they had never seen their mom that mad in their lives. And I knew that none of them was going to confess putting the stain on the sofa because they knew if they did, they would spend all of eternity in the timeout chair. And I knew that none of them would confess putting the stain on the sofa because, in fact, I was the one who put the stain on the sofa. And I wasn't saying nothing, not a word. And he says, here's the truth about us. We've all stained the sofa. You have stained the sofa. I have stained the sofa quite badly. Four simple concepts are in these few verses. I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. Not exactly true. It's not just against God. It's against Bathsheba and Uriah. But he's focusing on the idea that sin is primarily an offense against God. And he's right. Against you and you only, or you primarily have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And he talks about his core. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. I'm sinful to the core. And what you want, you desire truth in the innermost being, in the hidden part. You'll make me know wisdom. You want to transform me. He says, I see myself as God sees me. I'm honest. Sin is against God primarily. I've been sinful to my core. And you want to transform that core. And this kind of captures two theological concepts. One, which we see in other places in Scripture, which he's kind of imitating here, is repentance. Repentance literally means to turn or to change direction. Generally, we see it in the New Testament as a word used of salvation. When a person initially comes to faith, they turn, they change direction. A word we might be a little more familiar with as Christians would be confession. Confession is a Greek word, homo legeo. Homo means same, legeo means to say. To say the same thing as God about our behavior. We acknowledge that what God says about what we're doing is accurate and we're agreeing with him. What I'm doing is wrong. And that restores us to a right relationship with God. When I fall, I, I own my mistakes. Third, when I fall, I ask for restoration. 
Verse 7 alludes to sort of a ritual cleansing that priests would administer to sick people. Now, I want you to imagine a couple million people in Israel's early history that were out in sort of the desert wandering around. They had a tabernacle. They didn't have a permanent home yet. And when people would get sick, when they'd get a disease, what'd you do with them? Well, you isolated them, all right? We just kind of went through this as a globe. You know, when people got sick, they, they were isolated. And you couldn't have sort of diseases in the camp spreading around without a lot of antibacterial soap, things like that, which they didn't have back then. So when people were sick, they'd isolate them. To get back in the camp, they'd have to see the priest. The priest would then declare them okay. He talks about this. He says, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. In other words, my conscience is crushing me. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. This is a very interesting statement. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. It's David saying, I don't want to be outside the camp. I, I don't want to lose what I have with you, God. I want to go back to yesterday before this all happened. And this verse 11 is particularly interesting and troubling, and I would say a little misleading, when he says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Because if you just look at that sort of from a surface level, it sort of looks like David is saying, I don't want to lose my salvation. Like, I don't want to be cast out of the family of God. Now, there's two schools of thought on that. We can lose our salvation or we cannot lose our salvation. I tend to be in the we cannot lose our salvation camp based on a lot of scripture. If we can lose our salvation, the passages that would allude to it would be the one that Jesus mentioned where there's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which I believe is basically denying who Jesus is. Or when somebody goes apostate, sort of denies the faith. But we don't have examples in the Bible where it's like, well, you can commit these sins and it's going to be okay, but then there's this other list, like the really naughty ones, and then you lose your salvation. There's nothing like that in the Scripture. So what does David mean by this? Here's what I think he means. There was such a thing in the Old Testament, and you can follow it all the way back to Moses and Joshua, and you can see it in Judges and in Saul's life and David's life and after David. It's called the theocratic anointing. Remember, this is a theocracy. God is the king through monarchy. God has always been the king of Israel in the Old Testament. And so what you'll see is when God was trying to lead the nation through people like Moses and Joshua, the great leaders, or the kings, or the prophets, you'll see over and over, well, it will say when God starts working with them, the Spirit of God came upon Moses. Then when Joshua took over, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Joshua. When Saul was anointed, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David. You'll see it with the judges. The Spirit of the Lord came upon, you know, Samson. And so you'll see this throughout the Old Testament. It's theologically, in seminary, we call it the theocratic anointing. I think David is aware of that. He saw what happened with Saul. And he's like, God, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose your ability to use me with this nation that you've entrusted to me. It's not about losing his salvation. 
He want to lose what, what had been in his life for decades of service to God. When I fall, I ask for restoration. We can't always get back the life we had before in some situations, but the reality is we want to be restored to God. And finally, when I fall, I promise to tell others about your grace. I love this section. It is really, really rich. He says, if you'll restore me. So he's asking to be restored. You know, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Then he says, then, like if you do that, little deal with God, I will teach transgressors your way. I will make you famous, God. I am going to advertise for you. I will be your promo guy. Sinners will be converted to you. Then he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, which is like the, the, the murder rap. Forgive me for being guilty of shedding blood, what I did to Uriah. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. You get me off of this murder rap? I mean, it's going to be good. My tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. And then he says something that really isn't true. So he's exaggerating to make a point. As he says, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Well, of course he delights in sacrifice. There's all sorts of chapters in the Old Testament where he's saying you need to sacrifice, and I delight in it. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. In fact, what you really want, the sacrifices of God, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So he's kind of sort of bargaining with God. You really don't want a sacrifice anyway. You just want a broken heart over what I've done. Do you know why he's saying that? I love this. He's saying it because there's no sacrifice for what he did. In the Old Testament system, adultery is a capital offense and murder is a capital offense. So David's the king, he's the head of everything, and he's supposed to be put to death for two crimes. And he knows his only hope is appealing directly to the character of God. He's saying, God, there's no sacrifice for what I've done. You know it, and I know it. But what you really want is a broken heart. That's what sacrifices represent. You know it, and I know it, and I've got that. Please forgive me, and I will sing your praises till the day I die. He's in a unique position, not a good one, in the Old Testament covenant. I love the fact that David did what David did. I'm so glad it was adultery and murder. You say, why would you say that, Paul? But if he just cheated on a term paper in high school or plagiarized something in, you know, college or, you know, hit his brother when he was 12, it wouldn't mean this to us. Because David committed adultery and murder, it helps us know, okay, okay, there's hope for me too. There's hope for me too. There's grace for me too. Couple apps. First, we've all stained the sofa and more is coming. A lot of people become Christians and then they have all of God's rules and they start thinking, man, I gotta keep all of this. It's a lot. I mean, before I knew Jesus, I knew there was like maybe 10. But then there's so much more. I don't even wanna open this book because the more I read, the more I'm responsible for. And then we just feel guilty when we fail. 
It's not the life we're intended to experience, people. The more you understand God's expectations, the more you're going to realize you're probably failing God more than you'll ever even know. But we're not supposed to live with that sense of guilt. Second, how one handles failure is a huge predictor of one's outlook and one's joyfulness. And I say this as somebody who really, really struggled with this as a young person. I probably made the salvation prayer a thousand times because I thought there's no way God could accept me. I had a friend in college, his name was Sean. I believe I have one of his Bibles. We traded Bibles, I think I've got it somewhere. Sean was the kind of guy who, he was a great guy. He was a better guy than I am. Better guy than most of you were. And when he was in college, he would come to you, it wasn't unusual at all, and he would apologize for things that were not a big deal. He like had this overly sensitive conscience, and I could relate to that because I was the same way when I was young. Fortunately, I've grown out of that. But anyway, now I, some people are praying, I get a sensitive conscience. But, but I had an overly sensitive conscience too, and that can be tormenting because then you're always trying to confess and, and you're, you're looking for things that you might be disappointing God with or others, and you're just tortured by it. And he was tortured by it. And so much so, it was not a surprise to me when he took his own life with a gun on college campus during a summer. Why would somebody do that? My mind immediately went to knowing what Sean was like and the fact that anything he had ever done wrong in his life was completely forgiven, but he never felt it. What a waste of grace. When we can't experience what's been given to us, in the cross. How we handle failure is a huge predictor of how you're going to be, how you just appear every day. You know, you make a mistake. Oh, I'm so awful. How about God's grace is so often, because I've made this mistake so many times, and his kessid, his loving kindness, his loyalty to me never ends. Which perspective do you take? Third, you have not outsinned God's ability to forgive and use you. I, Christians are sometimes pretty bad people when it comes to judgment of other people and our willingness to sort of let them move on in life when they make a mistake. I had a friend I played high school basketball with. I think he was a senior when I was a freshman. I don't know if I've told this story before. I might have. He went to a Bible college. He was going to be a missionary. Met a wonderful woman there. He was going to be a missionary with her. I think they were working at camp that summer. And, you know, hot summer night, not enough supervision. He got her pregnant. And that was the end of everything. There was no more talk of being a missionary, no more talk of giving their lives overseas. And I got to ask the question why? Why? Now I get it that there has to be a standard for leaders to a certain point, and if people fail, maybe they need to step out for a period of time, but I just, if I'm going to lose Dan out of ministry, I just want to remind you of Moses, the murderer, David, the story we just shared, the Apostle Paul, who was killing Christians for a living. Why does everyone in the Bible get a pass 
and get the grace of God, and the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century doesn't believe in it. Let's remember what we're trying to sell here. Forgiveness, peace with God. And the church can be just cruel to failure. We better not be. Don't let me catch you do that. We better not be. Let's err on the side of grace. Let's call sin, sin, but err on the side of grace and forgiveness. And finally, keep short accounts with God and a short memory with yourself. You know, a lot of times we feel all that guilt. It's hard for us to go to God. David tried to live with us for a while until somebody had to come knocking on his door saying, hey, this ain't gonna pass, David. You're in some deep trouble here. Go to God quickly. Clear your soul. And... Let yourself move on too. I do not like the word forgive yourself because it's not a biblical concept, but I will say I understand what people mean by it, but I think forgive yourself should better be stated. Accept grace. Accept the forgiveness that God wants to give you. To me, that's what forgiving yourself means, is accept the forgiveness that God's trying to give you. It's on the character of God, not on you. I I hope that today's message is, is a reminder that the worst things that we do, the things that, that we really don't want anyone else here at church to know about us, and I've got quite a few, we're paid for. God paid for them. And we're intended to live in a way that many of us don't ever experience. God, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for this story And even though this was a difficulty in David's life, we get the benefit of seeing your grace and forgiveness acted out in his life and experience, and I thank you for that. I pray that in each one of our lives, we would similarly experience grace and restoration and forgiveness for whatever we struggle with, that we would recognize that being right with you is less dependent upon us and more dependent upon the fact that you are a gracious and forgiving God, full of loving kindness and loyalty to those who you love. Help us to experience that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.